Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, hosted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Donna Washington. Uh, Donna is a storyteller and author of the picture book, Boo Stew. Uh, So we're going to be talking about that book, as well as Donna being a storyteller, and we're also going to be talking about Donna's favorite picture book, What Mary Jo Shared. But first, I have to announce the results of my Halloween shorts contest. Uh, First, thanks to everyone who submitted a story, and there were a lot of good Halloween stories. So please keep on writing. But the winner of the Halloween shorts contest for 2021 is Manor S. for her story, Phobia Tunnel. Manor will be receiving a signed copy of my middle grade novel, Hushabye, and I will be posting the story on the Dream Gardens website as well. Also, I am going to read her story on this podcast, and I'm going to do that right now. Phobia Tunnel by Manor S. Hi, my name is Amy. I have lots of phobias, and let me tell you the story of how I met them. It was a normal Monday. I was walking to school, then I saw a sign that said shortcut this way. Of course I took it, but one of the phobias was right in front of me. Chapter 1. Hole Phobia The holes looked like blood. It looked like skin with big bloody holes in it. I ran as fast as I could to the next place. Chapter 2. Height Phobia The next lane was 100 feet in the air. There was a little pole to balance on. I safely made it on the other side. Chapter 3. Spider Phobia On the other side were huge spiders. The spiders were blocking the next part. There were little things to jump on. I fell on the third one, but luckily I landed on a spider's back and leaped to the next one. Chapter 4. Darkness Phobia The next room was pitch black. It was so hard to see, and I kept on seeing monsters. One looked so realistic, I screamed at the top of my lungs. Then I got to the next lane. Chapter 5. Sound Phobia Once I got to the last hallway, I heard this creak. Then I said, who's there? I heard more sounds. Tip, tap, tip, tap. Who are you? Then I heard a dolly voice getting deeper and deeper. Hello, hello, hello. I finally escaped. It was nighttime. I looked around and said, There's only one way back, and that is the Tunnel of Phobia. To be continued. My guest today is Donna Washington. Donna is an award-winning storyteller, spoken word recording artist, and author. Her story collections include such titles as A Tureen of Tales and A Little Shiver, and she is the author of such children's books as A Little Rabbit's Kwanzaa. Her latest children's book is called Boo Stew. You can find Donna's website at dlwstoryteller.com. Thank you for joining me today, Donna. Thank you for having me, Jody. As I mentioned, your, your latest children's book is a picture book called 
Boost Do, and I had the pleasure of reading it and really enjoyed it. And it seems very appropriate. Uh, we're recording this in September, but it will be coming out closer to Halloween. It seems a very appropriate book. So can you talk a little bit about what Boost Do is? Well, Boost Do is a book that came about because my son is the pickiest eater in the world. He's a texture eater, which basically means if he puts it in his mouth and it feels weird, he spits it out. And when he was really little, his gag reflex was terrible. And you, we would try to con, you know, encourage him to eat foods that he might not necessarily try. And after several times of everything sort of coming back, we just gave up on that. <laughs> but my daughter will eat anything. She's very game. She'll try anything. And when they were, she was about four and he was around seven or eight. They were sitting at the breakfast table and they were discussing the fact that they have such strange, you know, very opposite eating habits. And my son said, I wonder who would be a good cook for me. And then my daughter said, yeah, but you only eat strange things. Like he ate uh, peanut butter and turkey sandwiches. And uh, so then they came up with this cook who could cook really disgusting food. Because my son's pretty sure that most foods taste like this. And so they started coming up with caterpillar cupcakes and toe-dye toffee and all this other stuff, which they thought was very funny. And it, it sort of began to turn into a kind of chant at the table. And I we, we often make up stories together. So I sat down and I said, well, what's her name? And the more we went through it, the more this story kind of came out of it. And over the course of the next, gosh, I don't know, 10 years maybe, it became a told story. So I've performed this thing all over the place. And then a friend of mine, Carmen Didi, heard me do it. And she was like, ah, that would be a great picture book. So um, I pitched to Peachtree and they said it would be a great idea. So Boostu has gone through a lot of different phases. And it is my favorite kind of picture book because it's a told story captured on paper, which hopefully people who would read it would be encouraged to make lots of different noises. And Jeffrey Ebler did an amazing job of illustrating it such that I think the characters kind of jump off the pages and they they lend themselves to getting their own voices. So it's kind of a fractured variant of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, which originally we were calling Curly Locks and the Three Scares. Yeah. And so then it morphed into Boostu. And uh, it's it's the appropriate title because that's what she's going to make in the book, A Batch of Boo Stew. You know, it's interesting you, you're talking about you know, hoping people read it. As I was reading it, the thing that really jumped out at me as I was thinking about it was this is a book that just is meant to be read aloud. I mean, most picture books are, but this one just struck me as something this this really should be read aloud, it's not, not read quietly. It needs to be heard. <laughs> Uh, even more than seen, I think. Although, the, and the pictures, you're right, really do kind of, they're very dynamic and jump out. Uh, well, yeah, I was, when I started seeing these pictures, because that's the thing that I think as an author I worry about when I get do picture books is, I know what I see. <laughs> what is the illustrator going to see? And I've always been happy. I've never had a picture book come back and gone, oh, no. Um, so that's good. But I was particularly joyful about what Jeffrey Ebler saw because I didn't know what he was going to do with the scares. You know, they look really different for me in my own head. But he something that I think is child friendly with just a bit of a spook to it, but imaginative and out there enough to where it doesn't seem like a real thing. 
And you can almost, uh, they're sort of shadowy, so you can use yeah. your imagination and, and fill in sort of you know, what you might expect it to be, too. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And, and he's hidden them all over the place. So to, the words kind of pop off the page, but as you go through this book, go back and like look at the little details in the images because there's little scares hiding all over the place. And so that was a really fun little little tweak that he did that just makes you could just look at the pictures and not worry about the words. Just they they really kind of they mesh well, uh, well together. So it was a lot of fun. Is there a part of the book that you can share with us? Sure. I think my favorite part of this book out loud is when the scares they've stolen something off of a Curly Locks's windowsill and now they they want something to eat. So they come into town. Normally, they just stay in the swamp. So here we go. The next morning, the mayor was singing to himself as he sat down to breakfast when an itty-bitty scare opened the window and plopped right in the middle of his pancakes. It waggled his hairy little head. Gitchy-boo, gitchy-bon, gitchy-goo, gitchy-gon. The mayor lit a blue streak out of that house and nearly knocked down the blacksmith. Whoa there, Mr. Mayor. What's got you so shook? There's an itty-bitty scare sitting in the middle of my pancakes. What's one of them critters doing out in daylight? The blacksmith asked. Who cares? The mayor trembled. I just I just want it out of my kitchen. The blacksmith laughed. <laughs> I'll knock that itty-bitty scare into next Tuesday. I wouldn't go in there if I was you, the mayor whispered. Well, you ain't me. So there you go. A little <laughs> bit of boo. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Now I can definitely uh, hear your um, your storytelling uh, skills, the voices, and things like that. And I was kind of curious because uh, um, storyteller is an unusual sort of profession. You know, there's not, there's a lot of people who are who are storytellers. So how did how did that come about that you you decided to become a storyteller to go to, to tell stories, not not just write stories, but actually tell stories to to others. Well, I went to Northwestern University, which is right outside of Chicago, and I went originally for <laughs> pre-law, and I was there for 24 hours and saw the theater kids and thought they were having way more fun than I was. So I just joined them and switched my major to theater, and I told my parents at Christmas. <laughs> but, but they were okay. They were just like, as long as you're going to be happy. Uh, and then I spent uh, my four years at Northwestern studying theater and somewhere in there you know I, I did classical theater you know we were doing Shaw and Ibsen you know Cherry Orchard and I'm sitting in these classes going is anyone really going to cast me as Anya really you know it, it I, I realized I was in a profession at least the way I was being taught at Northwestern where I couldn't see myself in any of these roles and then when I was a junior, I guess, was I a junior? No, I was a senior. I was a senior at school. I had done some theater here and there um, at school. I guess I was a junior. And a friend of mine, um, her name is Nancy Donable, and she was at uh, ETSU. She's a, she's a professor at ETSU now, but she was a grad student. And she had to get people to take a class. And, one of her, and her graduate work was in storytelling, oral narrative. And so she wasn't sure she could get anyone to take the class. So she cast a show and made the cast members take the class. And I uh, auditioned, obviously, and got in. 
and I played the lead storyteller and I took my first storytelling class and everyone says that I made the transition. Like that's when that art form came up and bit me, but I was the only person who didn't know. And after the show closed, a man I'd never seen before in the department walked up to me and said, you are a storyteller. And I said, okay, <laughs> his, his name is Reeves Collins. And he was the newly hired children's theater professor there. And he basically walked up to me two weeks later with a class schedule. He said, we only have graduate courses in storytelling and I signed you up for two of them. I don't know what else you need to graduate, but you just have to work around it. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I show up first day in his class and I'm really, you know, I, I don't know how I was, I was young when I graduated from high school. So I was like barely 20 and I'm sitting around with these, you know, older students. They look like to me that they're people's parents, you know, and uh, in the graduate program and everyone's supposed to go around, explain who they are and then say what they're doing there. And it gets to me. And before I can say anything, he says, that's Donna. She's already a storyteller. Uh, she's just here to learn some material. And then the next person went. And I was like, OK. And I still wasn't convinced. And then he, uh, about halfway through the semester, the professor got a job. Reeves got a job. And he said, will you come and do half and I'll split the cash with you? And I thought, what, 50 bucks? No problem. So I showed up. I told for 20 minutes and I got one hundred and fifty dollars. And I thought huh, I bet you could make a living doing this. And I graduated from Northwestern and I have never done anything else. I have been a professional storyteller for 34 years. And imagine uh, as a, unlike a writer, you, you write a book and you might get, uh, you know, letters from kids or if you visit a school, you get um, you know, some feedback there, but you don't always know how people react. But as a storyteller, your audience is right there and you have that immediate sort of feedback right away. And so you can tell that this is working or this is not. So it's a very different experience, I imagine. It is. But you also get letters. You get letters. Kids draw pictures of you. And they draw pictures of the stories and they tell you that they want to write books. And it's it's really lovely. And one of the cool things about being a storyteller is you get to play with an audience. So they become part of what you do. It, there is nothing like having that kind of experience where you're performing for a group of people and you're all moving as one item. One item. I'm wondering, too, because I know this this past year uh, with everything going on that you've had to um, adapt doing more virtual uh, storytelling as opposed to doing live uh, presentations. Um, and I'm wondering, what was it? Is, is there an adjustment to, to doing that sort of thing or is it basically the same thing or do you have to? I, I'm just wondering, is, is there a, like a modification in doing it virtually as opposed to live? Uh, it's you know what it's so different uh, because you know the the thing about a, a storytelling audience is they feed each other so you know if you can get some of them to participate with you the entire group is going to go down you you can see like if I'm performing and I can see that that group of kids over there is starting to wander then I can make some adjustments in what I'm doing and if they start coming back I know okay so I'm in front of an audience that needs this kind of behavior. You can't do that online. <laughs> you, if you have an audience, you don't have one audience. You have as many people as is watching you because they're not able to hear each other and maybe they can see each other, but they might just be looking at me and the little boxes on the side. So it's, it's very different. You are more like a television program 
but you also have to stare at the camera because if you don't stare at the camera, you're not looking at anybody. <laughs> so on some senses, people have really enjoyed the virtual and the pre-recorded shows because it looks like they all have their own personal storyteller. But the performer, uh, the way I explain it to people is I imagine the perfect audience. They laugh appropriately. They're shocked when they need to be shocked. They gasp when things are amazing. <laughs> and then I perform to that audience. I perform the audience that's loving it. And I hope everyone else, I hope it's translating. That's the best you can do. And I would imagine, I could be wrong, but I would imagine that, you know, when you can, getting back to live shows would be a, a thing you look forward to. I had my first live show yesterday. Oh, excellent. Excellent. <laughs> and, and six people came and four of them did not speak English, which is always a great exercise in physical physical performance they did all the they did so much movement and following along that the organizer didn't realize they didn't speak english till after so <laughs> yeah but i love audiences i really really do uh, and it's, it it sounds like a terrific thing i i don't think i could do it myself but uh but, that, <laughs> but that's but that's just me you know <laughs> you're doing a lot of storytelling right now i've listened to a number of your podcasts I suppose so. I always consider the best podcast is when I, when I say the least amount. Now, uh, the book uh, you picked as one of your particular favorite children's book is a picture book as well. It's one I wasn't familiar with. It's called What Mary Jo Shared. It was written by Janice May Erdry. I believe that's how it said, and then illustrated by Eleanor Mill. And this was published uh, back in 1966. Uh, for readers, you know, like myself, before I picked up uh, a copy who are unfamiliar with what Mary Jo shared, can you talk a little bit of what this book is? So the story is about this little girl, this little black girl named Mary Jo. And Mary Jo is in a class where they have show and tell every day. And she tries to come up with things to share, but she can't, or she's, she feels like the things she's sharing aren't all that interesting. At one point she comes to, to comes to school with a grasshopper that her brother helped her catch and she's going to show it for show and tell. And then it turns out there's another boy in class who's caught six grasshoppers all by himself. So she decides not to show her grasshoppers, <laughs> her one single grasshopper. And um, it, it's really about her wanting to share something unique. And ultimately, what she does is she brings her father to school and she shares her father, who, when I was a kid in what Mary Jo shared, was a policeman. <laughs> and so the kids had questions about it and, and they want to talk about their own parents. And I was also always so proud of her because who would have thought to share their parent? Everyone's got. Them. So that's what the, the book was about. And I was an early reader, like I started reading when I was like four. So. I remember even even by five years old, really being able to read this book. And it's got a lot of language in it, which is something I love about picture books. I wish more picture books had more language these days. <laughs> um, but I love, love, loved this book. And what was it about in particular about this, this book that just connected with you uh, so much? Well, when I was a kid, there weren't, at least I didn't have, many picture books about black children, especially a little black girl, just doing normal stuff. Um, 
you know, the she was the only kid in any of the books I had who looked like me who might have gone to the same school that I went to. Um, everyone else in the book was white except for her. And that was often my situation. I'm an army brat. Uh, and when I was overseas growing up, I was always in multi-ethnic situations. Um, but before I went over there, I was living in Oklahoma, Lawton, Oklahoma. And I was I was a lone black child in uh, many, many a class. And it was nice to be able to see another girl who looked like me going to the same kind of thing, even though it wasn't about race at all. It was just nice to see. You mentioned um, before the recorded part of our interview, you mentioned that there is actually uh, different versions of uh, this book because um, you talked about uh, the father being a policeman. And then the book I picked up at the library, he was an English teacher. And I think there's a, a another version as well, I believe. I, I don't know what he is in the third version, but um, I I think what's kind of amazing is how this book has sort of become more, I don't know, publicly, publicly aware as it's morphed. It seemed they have three different women, I believe, have um, illustrated it. And yeah, the, the, the one I had was one of the first iterations of it. And the, she looks different in the different books. In the first two, she looks very similar. In the last one, she's wearing jeans and she's got uh, like a like a button-down shirt and she's got two plaits. But in the book that I had as a child, she had kind of a puffy afro with like a little puffy bun. And she wore dresses, little dresses, little, uh, I guess they're called princess peekaboo dresses type of thing. And yeah, she wouldn't be climbing trees or anything like that. <laughs> So the book has really changed to reflect little girls as they are in our society, little black girls. But it, so it was, it's just interesting to me that it is still you can still get it. Scholastic still puts it out. You can still buy it. Um, and she's she goes through basically the same thing, but it's just a little different. And there it is way more like multiracial now. If you got the I don't know if you have the the, the current version, the teacher is even black in that one. She had blonde like a blonde bobbed haircut when I was a kid and she was very young. Um, back when they showed teachers as always being very young people. I think I have a, a much older um, version of the book. It was interesting in reading the book and, and knowing you're a star storyteller because uh, it is about, you know, her, her problem is, you know, she wants something to share and everybody keeps sharing the thing that she wants to share and she's trying to come up with her own. And I'm thinking with kids, um, you know, they don't always have the words to tell their story. Um, and so sharing is important because it's a way that they can tell a story about themselves when they don't always have the words. And so that's why sh sharing is somewhat important. And I love that one of the things that happens at the end of the book, yeah, you're, you're, you're right when you talk about um, her trying to find something special, her trying to figure out why. And they ask her because the teacher asks her, uh, do you have anything to share? And she just looks down and shakes her head. She doesn't explain why she won't share. And her dad does the same thing. He looks down, he shakes his head. But what I love about the end of the book is when her father finally, she finally decides to share her dad. He, he sparks questions from the kids. Like the kids want to know things. And then she's 
right there telling stories. <laughs> you know, and and so it seems like the problem is that she's shy. That's what you kind of get at the beginning, but by the end, it's not that she's shy. Um, she just couldn't find the right thing to share. And when she was ready to share, she had lots to say. I loved that. And as a kid, I didn't get that that's what was so exciting to me. But I, I especially love the stories about her father that she, she te- the little teen little stories that she tells. I love that. Um, I think that when, when we're kids, adults are mysterious. Like we know that they must have been children, but they can't ever have been children. So that was some of the things I really loved about that book. Yes, and the children seem to love the idea of her father as a young boy, sometimes getting into trouble, and the idea that adults could actually, you know, be children who weren't always perfect children. It's always <laughs> appealing, I think, to children. Well, one of the things that um, I find as a storyteller, definitely, is I tell stories about when I was a kid and I made mistakes or I goofed things up, um, or and I, I come from a family with seven children. I'm one of seven. My father was in the army. As I said, I'm an army brat. And three of my siblings are adopted. So we had some some language divides a little early on in our all of us being a family. And so we have some crazy stories about traveling together. And, and one of my brothers, my mother said he would either be Martin Luther King or Al Capone. Um, he could sell your own shoes and make you think you got a bargain. <laughs> uh, so and then I have a brother who's I don't know that he's ever even gotten a parking ticket in his entire life. He's we used to call him St. Darren. So um, with a, like a wide variety of personalities and, and whatever, I have great stories about growing up with those people. And kids are always amazed that I was a child. And they ask, is that true? I said, yes, that really happened. Really? And what happened to them? And I was like, well, he's a grown up now. <laughs> and he does this. And they go, Wow. So um, even high school students are kind of funny. Um, it's that same thing, this unimaginable that that someone you're talking to ever really was your age. It's almost like they don't believe it. They know it happened, but they don't believe it. And it's that same feel I get at the end of what Mary Jo shared. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. I think it's that same feeling kids get when they see their teachers outside of school and don't know what to make of it. Yes. Do you remember the first time you saw your teacher, like in a grocery store? Uh, I'm sure I did. I can't recall, but I'm sure it was very strange, and I probably hid, I'm sure, knowing me. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, I I remember seeing her on the base, and I just thought, what is she doing here? You know, because you can't imagine that they eat or go to the bathroom or anything. They're, like, just in the classroom all the time. Uh, the other thing that uh, I, struck me about the story too that I think would be very important for kids is that this this problem ha- that she had you know, about what to share is something that she figures out herself. She doesn't somebody doesn't tell her or you know you know what to do. She actually figures it out on her own. And I think for a, a lot of kids, you know, the idea that I can I can do these things. You know, I'm capable. I can figure things out on my own if you give me enough time. Well, you know what, that that did very much strike me when I was a kid. And I think that's an important thing. Um, I one of the things that is that I find as I, I have gone through my life with this story sort of being my sort of bedrock of what I think stories are supposed to be about is I, I want to see heroines in stories 
who don't start out weak. I want to see them start out with their strengths, but not necessarily knowing how best to apply them. Which doesn't, I don't, I don't feel like I see that very often. I usually, I feel like I see a lot of really weak characters who learn to be strong, but I, I don't, I, I, I want to see more strong characters who learn to understand how to use their strengths. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Very much so. Very much so. And I think that that is the thing that I love about Mary Jo is that she, you know, she tries a lot of different stuff. Like at one point she's going to show up her umbrella and she, she comes to, in fact, one of the covers of one of the older stories of what Mary Jo shared, she's on the front cover with that lovely umbrella and her pink raincoat and her little pink boots. Um, but yeah, she's going to show off her new rain, her new umbrella. And then she gets to school and discovers everybody has an umbrella and she decides not to show it off, even though she's very proud of it when she leaves home. Like it doesn't occur to her that everyone's going to have an umbrella. So, you know, she, she does a lot of try and fail and well, I shouldn't say try and fail, try and then make decisions not to go forward. And I think that that's also something really important. You know, we have this idea that you have to get the right answer, that you have to do it the correct way. And she did it her way. And I think that's pretty cool. And I think kids like that. I certainly did as a kid. I think she even has a, I don't know if it was just in my book, but she has a dream of one point of uh, bringing an <laughs> elephant, uh, which which was, struck me as very interesting because it was mostly uh, realistic drawings and suddenly I turn the page and she's pushing an elephant. <laughs> I loved that. Oh my gosh, I had forgotten about that until I reread the book. And like a couple of days ago, but yeah, so she's, and she can't get the elephant. She's like, go away, shoot. <laughs> but yeah, cause it's too big to fit in the classroom. So she can't share it. It's just a, a surprising moment, which is, I imagine when you're telling a story, just have something that's just a, a little bit of surprise just to keep people on their toes. I love, I'm a huge fantasy buff. It's my favorite genre. And so I love a little fantasy sneaking right in to um a story which you know and i'm gonna i'm gonna be bold here and go back to boo stew that's kind of what i love about boo stew <laughs> i i love that there's like a, a place where people are doing normal things and there's all this fantasy wild stuff going on around them but yeah this this little moment in what mary jo shared where she has this bizarre dream th that just tickled me to no end every single time i got to it Yes, it just seemed to be part of a different book, but actually it really does fit in there. It makes perfect sense. Once you get over the shock of seeing the elephant anyway. <laughs> do you, do you, I mean, how am I going to ask this question? I know I'm not supposed to be interviewing you, but I'm curious. Does your, um, does your reading life interfere with your dreams or vice versa? I so rarely remember my dreams. I don't think I can say it ever really does. I just, I'm just one of those people who just, um, I occasionally wake up and I remember a dream and then I'll, I'll forget it. I just, I so rarely have dreams. I, it does not, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, but it doesn't seem to, yeah, it doesn't seem to, to bleed into my dreams or at least none that I can remember anyway. I'm a vivid dreamer. Ugh. Well, I also have insomnia, so I, I think those two things kind of go together a little bit.
Do you dream of your own stories as well when you're working on them? Like, uh, like, when, like say, like Boost do when you're writing it, is that sort of, along with just sort of thinking about it and sort of saying it out loud, is it it's something you will dream about as well? And then, then, or even things occur to you while you're dreaming and then you have to write them down? You know, the, sometimes they do. Um, I have a book called The Pride of African Tales, which James Ransom illustrated. Uh, and I had a story. It's a collection of stories from, from West Africa. And it, it was, I had a particularly tricky issue with one of the stories in the book. And between the editor at the, the company and myself, we couldn't figure out how to bridge the gaps. And I remember spending like two weeks sort of locked in a hotel room. <laughs> Sometimes I have to leave my house when I'm writing and it's real, I'm stuck. And I locked it, trying to work it out. And I woke up telling myself the story. And I ran to the typewriter. <laughs> How long ago is this? I ran to the keyboard on my typewriter and I typed out the story as fast as I could. Um, and it actually stayed that, I mean, other stuff in the book did, did shift around, but that stayed exactly like it was. It didn't change again. So yeah, I, I have occasionally tell myself stories that end up, uh, in books or pieces of books, but that's probably the most vivid one I had where I'd spend so much time focusing on the story. I woke up telling it. That sounds fascinating. Sounds fascinating. What is the name of the book again? A Pride of African Tales. Pride of African Tales. Well, um, Donna, uh, thank you so much for um, talking to me both about um, your own book and reading uh, to me. Uh, very enjoyable. And also talking to me and introducing me about uh, what Mary Jo shared. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me about all of that today. Well, thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. You can find information about Donna Washington at dlwstoryteller.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can find the Dream Gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jodyleemott.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at dreamgardensjlm. The Dream Gardens podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.